all sorts of books and things out there that describe different ways of doing it. But the only thing I'd like to kind of mention today is that the root of the path, right, in terms of Buddhism is called Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And I'm just going to touch on those briefly. From the point of view of Sila, it's acting ethically and acting correctly in your relationships with other people. And if you want a real simple formula for being ethical, it's just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the golden rule works. And with that, with that line, you can forget about sila for the moment. Right? It gets more complicated. Action, speech, livelihood. We can go into all the details, but I don't think that's required today. The second factor is samadhi. Now, samadhi means uh, with the foundation, samadhi, or concentration. And we, talk, we just talked about that, right? It's difficult to be concentrated on an object that doesn't engage you particularly at the object level of your preference. You heard that? In other words, I can get engaged very closely with pizza, as long as the pizza's there. And after that, it's over. So to get concentrated with something like a flower, or the image of a Buddha, or something like that, requires an effort that goes beyond your preference mind, because how long are you going to be interested in looking at this flower before you get bored and restless and want to do something else? How long? If I wasn't here and you just had this, this flower sitting here, right, and how long would it take you for it to leave? Given that you didn't know it was attached. You wouldn't stick with it very long. Samadhi is really important for the development of right hemisphere brain because you cannot access right hemisphere in its fullness while your mind is wandering around in the left. So in a sense, it's very weird. It's in a sense, it's kind of like mental harikiri, right? Where you're going, no, I'm not talking to my left. My left brain is off duty. I don't care what you want. I don't care how bored you are, I don't care whether you're restless, I don't care whether you like it, I don't care whether you don't like it, I'm just sitting here with this flower for the next half hour. Just me and the flower. And about two minutes in you can get, this is stupid, this is a waste of time, I'm not doing this. I can, I'm a free person, I can do it, I don't have to sit here and do this, and you probably won't, you'll go. Right? And you'll have had a moment or two of concentration, which feels good, right? but you'll move on. And so you don't get that deeper understanding that uh, develops that right hemisphere God experience. You don't actually get to go over to the other side into nirvana mind because you're, you're, you can't hold it long enough. Right? Fair enough. So that's samadhi, and it gets divided into concentration, effort, and mindfulness. And the, but the, curiously, the last one is called panna, means wisdom. And curiously enough, although it's listed uh, last by me, in all the texts, it comes first. And panna, or wisdom, has two aspects. One is sama, meaning with mother, usually translated as correct. Right? Samaditi and samasankapa. Now, samaditi means the right view. Or better yet, total view or complete view. So what I'm trying to do here today is present you with the view as represented by Buddhism in terms of what kind of view you should have in relationship to sila and samadhi. And so that view is, fundamentally, the root aspect of the view is that reality, from a transcendent point of view, is aware. It's self-aware, it's luminescent, and it's spacious. And from that, from that 
platform, all phenomena appear. Well, let's say we have your interest. The next question you might ask is, what problems am I going to meet? You want to know? What kind of problems you might run into? If you were to become a Buddhist, what kind of problems might I run into? Well, the biggest problem you're going to run into is your habits. And your conventional thinking, public opinion. You're going to run into emotional conflict. You're going to run into, I have better things to do, etc., etc., etc. The status quo, I'd rather go drinking. I'd rather go to the party. I'd rather do this. I'd rather do the other thing. Right? My job, my career, my relationships are more important. These are the issues that are going to face you. Your relationship is important. We don't argue that. But it won't produce peace. I mean, in the transcendent sense of the word. So, like that. Fear of taking the wrong path. This is a big one. Fear of being part of a cult. Well, you know how they define cult, right? If you're the minority, you're a cult. If the majority, you're religion. So, in America, Buddhism is a cult. Right? When I started in Buddhism, it was a cult. In North America. It wasn't a cult in Asia, but it was certainly a cult in North America in the 1970s. Now, of course, with the Dalai Lama and his band, I mean, it's, if you know the song, um, it's a song. The Dalai Lama and his band. The guy went to the, woman went to the psychic fair and met the Dalai Lama. Never went. Um, what's her name? Audrey Old, an Australian country and Western. Anyway, funny. So, Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Christian mystic in the uh, Jesuit frame of mind, said the greatest fear of man, women, is the fear of taking a dead end, dead end path. Your greatest fear is taking a dead end path, that, that you're going to end up somewhere where you don't want to be. The worst fear, the worst fear in people is the fear of taking the wrong road. And, it, and if the majority are going down this path, you get really nervous when you take that path, don't you? You know when you're walking in the woods, you're looking for the whatever, and 30,000 people go that way, and one person goes this way? Which way do you think you might go? Yeah, you're going to follow the majority, and probably on a path, that's a pretty good idea. But what would an intelligent person do? An intelligent person would go up to this one person and say, why are you going this way when they're all going this way? And he'd say, well, they're going to look at the Momiji, and this is where the tea house is. Well, if you want to look at the Momiji, you follow the majority, and if you wanted a cup of tea, you follow the minority. So, uh, this fear of dead ending keeps conventionality and the status quo in place. You could argue, I don't want to get political, but people don't usually vote for change until they can't stand what's going on. This is, this is the nature of the human being. You don't change anything in your being until you can't stand what's going on. And this is the other uh, block or limitation on your ability to follow the path of awakening is because you're basically, if you're not motivated by the fact that your life isn't quite as what you want it to be, you can't get going. And that makes sense because you're kind of more or less happy. And as long as you're more or less happy, you can't seem to summon up the uh, energy or the concentration required to sit still to get access to that right hemisphere brain of nirvana because the objects are still giving you too much pleasure. The attendant object with this is, of course, uh, is a attachment and clinging. We're very attached to our worlds. We're, we have a lot of clinging to our world. And we keep hoping that uh, somehow, miraculously, it's all going to turn out great. And insofar as it is turning out great for you, this class won't hold your attention 
for very long, insofar as greatness seems to keep eluding you, then you might want to take a look at the meditative mind. And of course, the other aspect is laziness. Laziness. You see this in anything you do. I mean, if you're a ballerina, you're probably not lazy, right? I mean, you're, you work at it. But if you're a ballerina, you probably don't put a lot of energy into figure skating. Right? So when it comes to figure skating lessons, you're probably pretty lazy. When it comes to ballet lessons, you're probably pretty dedicated. Fair enough? It's a matter of interest. <clears throat> so when it comes to what holds you back in terms of experiencing the right hemisphere brain, laziness is basically the argumentation. Because if you're getting enough positive feedback from your left hemisphere involvement, you're not going to have the motivation to go to the right hemisphere. If, on the other hand, you find that the left hemisphere's engagement with all its objects is a little bit dissatisfying or isn't producing quite the results you wanted, this is where you start thinking about spiritual path and unfoldment. But it does take effort, like I said before, and it takes uh, quite a bit of effort, but you do get better. So what are the benefits? Well, this is a hard one for you, but it's the end of being subject to suffering forever. The key word here is subject to suffering. We're not, we're not saying you're not going to suffer anymore, but we're going to say that because of your ability to reside in your so-called God mind or your Buddha nature mind, the suffering that does come to your life doesn't bother you anymore. Whereas from the point of view of your left hemisphere mind, your ego mind, the suffering in your life bothers you a, a lot. Right? So when we say the end of being subject to suffering, it's not because there's not still struggle in your world, but it's the end of your taking that struggle personally. Now the thing that from the point of view of your your ego mind or your so-called left hemisphere your mind, this struggle is personal. It's happening to me. Right? It's about me, it's happening to me, it's in my world, it's my life. From the point of view of the right hemisphere of mind, it's just life. And that the transcendent mind doesn't identify with it, it doesn't take possession of it, it doesn't own it, it doesn't say it's happening to me, and therefore, pretty much has a, not much of an effect, including death. So, one of the large definitions of this Buddhist thing is it's not personal. That the God mind or the transcendent mind is not personal, it's not about you personally. Your left hemisphere mind, or your walking around ego mind, it's all about you personally. Alright? If you want to look at it another way, the God mind, or the Buddha mind, is about a thousand times better than your best day ever. So, this is the advertisement. You want peace conjoined with bliss that is uninterrupted. It's free. Doesn't you know I'll, you know, how much does it cost? What are you trying to sell me? I have a bridge for you. You want to buy the Brooklyn Bridge? It doesn't cost you anything from the point of view of economics. It doesn't cost you anything, actually, in terms of even your left hemisphere life. What it does cost you is it, it, it costs you where you take your refuge. If you take your refuge in your ego structure, it's going to cost you that. But it doesn't mean you don't remember your phone number and you can't cross the street. So it's your hundred day, it's your best day times a thousand. Now what's the other nature of sensorial or emotional or mental pleasures? Is that they end. This doesn't end. 
Buddha nature or Buddha mind never comes to an end. Oh, and the last bit, it's free. Did I tell you it's free? It's free. You don't even have to put any money in that hole. Is it difficult? Yes. But so is anything worthwhile. And it, as I said earlier, it takes 10 years to get good at it. And I'm, when I say 10 years to get good at it, I mean 10 years with effort. It's like, okay, 10 years. Hey, I've been, I've been in it for six years now. It's like, yeah, I've been, I've been studying ballet for, for, ten, for five years now. So I've got five more years to go and I'm going to be good, right? And I go, well, have you put your toe points on? I mean, have you actually done anything? Well, no, no, but I've been, I've been, I've been showing up. I mean, I go to the, I go to the temple, you know, and I, I I'm, I'm there. I'm, I show up. I go, well, what is your? Have you been devoting ten years of effort to this? So that if you devote the effort, I guarantee you that even if you don't realize Buddha nature in ten years, you'll be in a much better space than you've ever been before because you'll have large accumulations of this God mind experience under your belt. Or women can do it. Men can do it. If you're human, you can do it. Yeah. I mean, if you have normal human intelligence, you can do it. Okay, how much? I don't know whether you guys have read uh, Steppenwolf. Um, Herman Hesse, from the, he's a popular in the 70s with the hippie crowd. Not, not that I, of course, was ever such a person. But he wrote a book called, I think, Steppenwolf, and he uh, talks about the magic circus and the price of admission your mind. So the price of admission, the price of admission to Buddha nature is not your objects of your mind in terms of not ever having them again. But the price of admission is, is that they no longer become the place where you take your refuge. Right? The refuge is switched from me, 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 and my, 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 and I, 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 I. The refuge is shifted to this kind of aware, spacious emptiness. Who can get it? Anyone who's willing to be ruthless. What's the ruthlessness we're talking about? Well, the ruthlessness we're talking about is ruthless self-honesty. In other words, you have to kind of say, this state is not as good as it could be. This state can be better than it is. Right? And the reason I'm in this state is because I'm clinging to my outdated emotional obscurations or my... Uh, primitive views or my desire to look like I'm smart or whatever it is I need to have in there and that's letting go and where do you sign up well right here right now you've heard it there's books about it you can read it there's all sorts of people around who can talk to you about it there's teachers out there you can go find there's places you can research it there's it's available so you can sign up in terms of getting involved in it right now by simply following your nose to the next thing that leads you there. And I guess the last thing is, do I need a teacher? And the answer to that is, yes, you do. The question you should then ask is, why? why? And the answer I give to that is because the nature of a blind spot is, it's blind. You're, you can't see your own blind spots, and that's just the way it is. You say, well, what happens if a teacher has blind spots? Well, it's not your problem. That's his problem or her problem. Your problem is you have blind spots. And if it turns out your teacher does have blind spots, you'll just go get a better teacher. So in that sense, a bad teacher cannot hurt a good student. Because if you get a bad teacher, you just throw them away. 
right? Recycle them, put them in the recycle bin, tell them to go get some work there, and you go on to the next one, which is pretty much what you've done your whole life, right? Are you married to your first boyfriend? Did you blame him for not being awakened? No, I mean, he was, you know, he was just a kid, right? So you got a better boyfriend, right? Now you got husband number 37. In my, in my brother's case, wife number four. You see, the, the problem that my brother never learned is that all the problems in his marriages were because of his wife's fault. I said, well, what happened to your first marriage? He said, well, that was my wife's fault. What about your second marriage? Well, that was my wife's fault. What about your third marriage? That was my wife's fault. Fourth marriage? That was my wife's fault. I said, don't you think any of this was your fault? He said, no. I just picked the wrong women. <laughs> Would you call that a blind spot? Can you understand how he might not see it? Just look to yourself, where somebody's tried to tell you something for years, and you just aren't listening. So, my teacher, may he rest in peace, I worked with him for 30 years. Not all the, you know, on and off. Less in the, la less in the last years, because I was here. Anyway, the key here then becomes a question of faith and trust. I asked my teacher once whether trust was awakening, and he said complete trust is complete awakening. The question is, what are you trusting? Are you supposed to trust me? Not necessarily. Are you supposed to trust the Dalai Lama? Not necessarily. Trust is built on a relationship that's honest. And the thing is, is that when somebody who loves you tells you something about yourself that you don't want to hear, you have to love the truth more than you love your feelings. Huh? If you don't have that kind of faith, or if you don't have that kind of trust in life to present to you the teacher that you need when you're ready for that teacher, who might be your husband or your wife or your boss, or the person next door or the girl at work, or the guy who drives your bus, your teacher can manifest in any kinds of forms until you are willing to hear where your blind spots are in relationship to balancing this left-right hemisphere dialogue, your progress is basically on hold. And uh, then that's the kind of bottom line. So do you need a teacher? Yes, you do. Will you have the same teacher your whole life? Maybe, maybe not. In my case, yes. I met my teacher when I was 24. I was with him until he died in 2001. I mean, again, on an ongoing basis. He, by the end, I was on my own, pretty much. He just said, go teach. And one day, I hope to be able to say to some of you, go teach. So, unless you have some questions, thanks for coming. Be well, be happy. If you have a question, ask it. I have a question. Yes. What do you think about art? Art? Art, what is your opinion? Where does it come from? Art is a... Inspiration, for example, does it always come from the subconscious only? Or does it come from the Buddha mind also sometimes? Yeah, both. I'd say that, again, it's a dialogue, right? Art is, uh, art's great, because uh, you can't really call, I don't know whether you're, are you familiar with Tibetan paintings? The, the Tonkis? Yeah. They're, I can't call those art. Because they're not creative, they, they're formulistic. So from the point of view of meditative mind, the, the Tibetan tankas, the Tibetan paintings, are meant as meditation objects. They're not really meant as art as such. Now they do have artistic elements that paint, you know, canvas and all that. 
But the creative art of mind, the creative artist's mind, which creates something new, is very much an, an attempt for the artist to access that right hemisphere, that different way of seeing, and, and, and bringing that feed and then putting it back into form in a left hemisphere way through its painting. So it's a kind of a dialogue or a bridge, in my mind, from the left hemisphere, which is very kind of dull and methodical and, you know, repetitious and repetitive, to this right hemisphere mind, which is like, oh, okay, I saw this thing and I want to I want to portray it. How do I get it from where my mind was onto the paper? So in that sense, art is very much a, a, a right hemisphere event. And in that sense, it's a lot like meditation. Now, the difference between art and meditation more formalistically is in the intention. Whereas from the point of view of art, the motivation is simply to get an idea down on paper, right, which, which is fine. Meditation is an attempt actually to move the mind over into the right hemisphere and let it rest there. And then maybe after the person gets up from meditation, they might paint something. But it's uh, very similar. Anybody else? Yes? What, um, uh, excuse me, because I don't necessarily have the language to, to say this, but what, what prevents the process from becoming self-indulgent? Like, in the sense that you, you That's talk very about good getting rid of um, the, the objects to get to the capital M mind, but isn't that in itself uh, becoming another object? Yes, it can. And in fact, that's called the using, using the cure as a poison. You take... Emptiness is the medicine that cures you from a wrong view, but if you take the medicine as a view, then you've got a poison. Right? So you're right. But let me answer the first part. So the thing is, is you kind of reduce it all to the one. In, the, in this case, Buddha nature. And then we take the Buddha nature rug that you're standing on. Well, <laughs> you don't, you know what I mean. Does that help there? Let me answer the first part in terms of self-indulgent. Yes, it's self-indulgent. But the Buddha said all things are done for the sake of self. Everything you do is self-indulgent. You have kids because that gives you a sense of self. You have a job because that gives you a sense of self. You're married because you have a sense of self. You eat pizza because it gives you... Everything we do is about us. Right? I get married because it's good for me. I love her because it's good for me. I have kids because it's good for me. I do treat those kids well because it's good for me. So in that sense, the self is all we ever know. So when we talk about saying, okay, well, if you're going to be a selfish little so-and-so, <laughs> what is the best little so-and-so to be? And we're going to argue the best so-and-so to be is a Buddha so-and-so. Because with that Buddha mind, you actually transcend the self in the process of serving the self in its highest interest. So you're right, it is self-indulgent. But if you consider the fact that many, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, good people trying to do good things, getting it all mucked up because of their particular obstructions in terms of how they go about it, you come back to that old saw which is physician heal thyself, or to thine own self be true, or look first to yourself and then cure the world. So we're going to argue that fundamentally unless the doctor's healthy, he can't do much for the patient. So it's that physician heal thyself. So we hope that in the process of you getting clear and more Buddha-like in your uh, experience, then that's going to trickle down through everybody you meet and everybody you come into contact with and all your actions and decisions and the cause and effects of your karma. Certain things aren't going to happen anymore for you and other things are. And all of that feeds back into the system as a positive feedback. It's only The only ecology of 
there is on the planet is Buddha nature. You can put another label on it if you want, Christ consciousness, I don't care. But the only ecology that exists is the mind of awakening. Because only the mind of awakening only takes what it needs, to the degree with which it needs it, when it needs it, and never takes more than, than that in relationship to what it needs to survive. So it's, it's not the awakened mind that's polluting or, or creating toxic waste, right? It, it, it just has no motivation in doing that because the money's not worth it. You know, having toxic relationships aren't worth it. It's better that you just each go your own way, you know, go get some therapy, take up basket weaving, learn to get a puppy dog, you know. So in that sense, the cure, the cure becomes a poison the minute you think you're doing it for yourself. It becomes a cure the minute you realize you need to be, you need to be in a clear state in order to have a good relationship. You need to be in a good state in order not to cause damage in your environment, and so on and so on. So I, I don't know if that takes you anywhere. We share the merit. Um, sharing the merit uh, simply means that whatever good feeling or experience that's been had here today amongst us may it be shared by all beings everywhere. So may you be well and happy. Thank you for coming today.